Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Uh, my name is Nathaniel Millett, my first interview for New Books in Native American Studies, and I have the great privilege of having Professor Andrew Frank with me today. Andrew is a recently promoted full professor at Florida State University. Uh, he has a PhD from the University of Florida. He specializes in the Native history of the American, North American Southeast, the Florida Seminoles and Creek Indians. He is the author of uh, an excellent book called Creeks and Southerners, Biculturalism on the Early American Frontier, which came out in 2005 a number of articles and book chapters, and he is most recently the author of a book which came out just a few months ago from University Press of Florida called Before the Pioneers, Indians, Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of Miami, a really very interesting uh, regional study of, of Miami going way back to its, its uh, ancient, ancient history up to the late 1800s. Um, welcome, Professor Frank. Great to be here. Good to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you to give us an overview of, of your previous work before we start talking about your, your current book, Before the Pioneers. Um, and perhaps you could talk about your, your first book um, and your broader interest in Southeastern Native American history. Well, I started my research looking at the Creek Indians, in particular the Creeks during, say, the long um, 18th century, starting around, say, 1750, 1730, and moving its way up to removal. And my real interest was figuring out kind of what these bicultural families of primarily Scottish and English and sometimes American husbands and Creek Indian women, um, how these families mediated the frontier and what happened to, say, the children who um, are kind of dripping off the pages of all the archival primary sources, uh, but never quite had treatment unto themselves. And so I started examining that as a graduate student. And what really um, fascinated me was the ways in which kind of ancient norms of Creek society continued to govern the ways in which they treated outsiders up through the 19th century. And so that was kind of my foray into Native American history and Native American studies. And that's what became Creeks and Southerners. And that's really where, say, the first half of my career started, was really looking at um, what these particular families um, look like and how they behaved on the frontier and really questioning whether race was a um, an important category from the inside out from Creek perspectives. And so that's really where I started. And as my research went through um, and I was writing the book, there was a lot of seminal material, Florida material that didn't quite fit. Um, and you know, whenever you write a book, you always have materials on kind of the cutting block floor. Um, and then I ultimately found myself teaching in Florida. I was down in South Florida at Florida Atlantic University, about 20, 30 miles away from one of the Seminole reservations. And I was doing a lot of work with the Seminoles. And so I threw myself into um, Seminole Indian history, which was um, and still is in many ways often understood as an offshoot of Creek history. And so I imagined that um, oh, how hard can this be switching from one tribe to another? After all, one is really kind of the next generation of the of the other. And what I've discovered is that the Seminoles and the Creeks are really quite different. Um, like all Southeastern Indians, they have some 
similarities, but the history is quite different. And that led me into a whole series of projects. And Before the Pioneers is the most recent. So thanks for that overview of, of your, uh, your previous research interests. Um, it, it sounds as if you kind of gradually came upon this um, synthetic book about Southern Florida and Miami in particular. Um, but it also seems to be uh, a pretty big jump, if I read it correctly, um, in that we're talking about a, a fundamentally diff- different region and different indigenous history and in largely different in separate historiography. Um, what... Uh, what was the ultimate uh, genesis of deciding to do this project now about Miami? Well, there were kind of two different things happening at once. On one hand, I teach a course in Florida history and have been teaching a course in Florida history for oh, longer than a decade now. So um, I have been thinking about issues related to how Florida fits within um, either we want to call it vast early America or U.S. history or the American South or the Caribbean. And so I've been struggling with those ideas for a long period of time. Um, And at the same time, there was this archaeological dig that was going on at the mouth of the Miami River. And what they discovered there was pretty remarkable. Um, and it, w- it wasn't necessarily startling. I think they had a sense for what they were going to find when they were there because the written records were decent. Um, but it was pretty startling to see in the heart of Miami um, post holes for buildings that are upwards of 2,000 years old um, within 10 feet of the front steps for a Henry Flagler Hotel from the late 19th, early 20th century. So to have basically on one really relatively small parcel of land, we had really good physical evidence for more than 2,000 years of continuous occupation. So my interest in Florida history and, um, and Native American studies combined with kind of watching NPR, and then I got involved with History Miami, which is the archive that is in um, a museum that's going to now house a, an exhibit at the site. Um, I got involved a little bit with the mediation between the developers and historic preservationists. And so I found myself with all of these kind of mountains of information and all sorts of ideas I wanted to play with and A plus B equals C, right? So it became um, a relatively, his, for a historian, I think I moved pretty quickly. I think the whole thing from start to finish took maybe a little bit more than four years, Um so it was not a, I've been working on my seminal project for about a decade. Um, and so this was a, a carved out part of it. Um, but I think that's kind of the genesis of it. It really was about, um, for me, it was a race against, the, there is going to be a museum that's going to open up at the ground floor of the construction that's going on there. And I wanted to beat that construction. And theoretically, the building was supposed to be done, but it won't be done for another year or so. So I won. <laughs> Well done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it sounds to me like the book came to you from, from various avenues, um, from, from your teaching and, and your lecturing, um, your activity as a public historian, and then these archaeological developments in, in southern Florida. And it seems like an incredible, uh, incredibly rich uh, symbolism, uh, finding this, this ancient native settlement directly in front of this Flagler Hotel and the very different um, maybe public perceptions and understanding of South Florida's history and the reality of Florida's very rich ancient past. Um, 
this book came to you. Can you give us a very brief overview of maybe the, the state of the historiography of, of southeastern Florida? And in particular, one of the things I found so, so useful about the book uh, is a very skillfully used archaeology, which you have to do as, as a historian of, of Native America. And you very seamlessly kind of blend these, these two things together. Well, I think... I think the historiography for Miami or South Florida in general is pretty typical for Native American history, at least say a Native American history as it existed 10 years ago. So there is a an ongoing struggle, as you all know, of historians to connect the ancient world with the modern world, what used to be known as prehistory with history, um, to bridge archaeology um, and those types of forms of evidence and historical evidence, archival written evidence. And Juliana Barr and other folks like that and Dan Richter have done a really remarkable job of trying to sketch out how we do that and, and Robbie Etheridge as well. But South Florida has an even greater chasm between it. So on one hand, we have a pretty good rich archaeological tradition and we have a very good historical tradition, but it starts roughly 1890s where there's almost nothing written between what say, prior to the arrival of the Spanish, and when, say, Henry Flagler and Julia Tuttle and these early founders of the city of Miami in the 1890s when they arrived. So we have several hundred years where nothing has been written about Miami, um, even though, of course, there was history there. And then you add to it the false presumption that the Seminoles are really newcomers to the area. So there is a sense in the historiography that South Florida was vacant, just awaiting um, development, right? It's the, this is uh, Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier, but after Turner really wrote. And so as an opportunity, as a scholar, it was, it was low hanging fruit, if that makes any sense, right? This is a, uh, to say that there was history prior to Flagler is, it's, it's an, uh, it's a, of course, uh, moment. Um, but the ability to connect the history of the Tequesta with kind of the steps of history that can, um, that go along the way um, was a pretty interesting opportunity. And to have it in one basically city block is, I think, unique, um, at least it's unique within the literature. I, I would agree. And I, it's um, on one hand, it's, it seems obvious. Of course, there's, there's a long-term human history in Southern Florida, as there was any part of, of North America. But at the same time, as, as you know well, uh, the historiography of, of of Florida is, is such that um, people struggle to fully comprehend um, what was going on in, in the region, uh, be it 200 years ago to, to 400 odd, odd years ago. And this is particularly so amongst historians who don't focus on the region and the, the public in general, that it, it again tends to be this, this idea of almost a, a barren wilderness, maybe a vague comprehension of a Spanish past, maybe some, a native presence. But by and large, he's simply waiting for, for Disneyland and, and the explosion of Southern Florida, things like this. Um, so it's an important thing to say and to keep reminding people, in my opinion, and, and especially in a, in a form like this, in a, in a highly accessible, um, synthetic book, uh, which presents the reader in a very manageable way with a tremendous amount of, of information and information that a lot of people, historians included, will, will find new um, and surprising. I'm glad to hear that. I'd add, so one of the things that is interesting for me is that we have, maybe I'll call it episodic history for Florida. Right? You mentioned that some, there was this general awareness that there's a Spanish past, 
but we've kind of confined it geographically to Pensacola and St. Augustine. And we have a, also a sense of a Spanish past, but we tend to focus on, say, 1565 and the very early Spanish, and then very, very late. And we really we still lack a, an ability to tell a history that is centered on the communities that are here rather than trying to connect them to Jamestown or Plymouth or other places that are more typically part um, of the American narrative. So right as, as we are trying to imagine a vast early America, we can start growing a story of North America from pretty much anywhere. And Miami or what becomes Miami is that that was kind of my choice. I, I agree entirely. And maybe in, in a few minutes, we can also talk about um, continued efforts to uh, situate Native American history more firmly within the history of the South and to have historians of the South and the general public um, really fully appreciate uh, the extent to which uh, the South was shaped by indigenous people from the century, millennia, millennia, yep. uh, and, and up until the, the present day. Um, Florida seems to be bedeviled by the twin pillars of people failing to understand uh, the, the indigenous impact on Southern history and then failing to understand that Florida is, is a rather important part of, of the North American landmass um, that in some ways also connects with the Caribbean to, to North America. So, so it um, can be approached and should be approached, in my opinion, from, from multiple different angles and um, still in some ways gets, gets short shrift um, in a lot of different ways. Um, can you give us, uh, the listeners, essentially an overview of the indigenous history of, of Maya um, and what you'd like listeners, before they, they go and read your book, to, to know about the native history of, of Miami and the native role in, in this particular environment and place um, over the course of the last couple of centuries, if you can do that. Sure. So what I'd start with is by saying that I think is maybe obvious to many, but we don't think about it very often, is that human inhabitants come to the Florida Peninsula and deep into the Florida Peninsula um, at least 12,000 years ago, right? It's finding the sites and finding evidence for it has been kind of painstakingly slow and difficult, but we have archaeological sites in South Florida, what is now Miami-Dade County, um, the lower part of the peninsula, um, that are at least 12,000 years old. And we have incredible archaeology that is 5,000 years old. So whether we want to call them the Tequesta or Proto-Tequesta or the people who become Tequesta, these communities in South Florida by 2,000 years ago, um, we're imagining them as being Tequesta, right? These are late archaic Indians in the archaeological perspective, but they're Tequesta and they form these settlements devoid of agriculture, but are maritime communities. They live off primarily of, of seafood and what they can harvest from the water. They lack rocks, but they construct all sorts of tools um, based on shells um, and bones and other um, available items and wood. And they construct villages that hug both, say, the, the east coast of Florida being the Tequesta, the interior um as being somewhere between Tequesta and Calusa, who are on the West Coast. And they are a vibrant, active, trading maritime community for a millennia prior to the arrival of Ponce de Leon. Uh, we have pretty decent records that they're traveling to the Bahamas and to Cuba, as well as elsewhere along the coast of what later becomes the United States or North America in general. And so there are um, the first Floridians, if you will, 
in a way that we often try to think that the seminals are here, but the seminals aren't here yet. They don't quite form until many years later. But the Tequesta are, for the southeastern portion of the United States, the southernmost portion, they are the dominant Native American group that is there. And they are the group, um, or at least one of the groups, that Ponce Leon um, mentions when he comes to um, Florida in 1513. There's a Spanish mission there in the 1560s that um, quickly gets destroyed. They rebuild it again. It's the site of the first play in the United States. The, the Spanish and the attempt to try to convert the Indians that are there. Um, they do all sorts of public performances um, in order to display the glory of God. Right. This is um, this is the site of a form of Spanish colonialism that is um, often overlooked. Right. This is one of those missions that is not on the. Camino Real that connects basically the, the panhandle together. This is this is part of this world, and that world gets ravaged by the Indian slave trade, right? Which is kind of one of those developments of kind of the last fifteen years of southeastern historiography. Um, but that is what leads largely to the destruction of the Tequesta, who are there, right? They become victims of this really devastating slave trade. And as they are captured um, and shipped off to places unknown and, and far away or, or killed, um, the Indians of the interior and along the coast, they begin to regroup in Miami. And they're not quite Tequesta anymore, but we don't quite have a name for them. The Spanish called them Costas because they lived on the coast. Um, but they form these communities of diverse ethnic, linguistic, and um, kind of background, social backgrounds. And these are the communities that are there up until the early 1800s. Um, and they get joined by runaway slaves. William Augustus Bowles is there for a short period of time. A whole bunch of shipwrecks um, and salvagers come through. And this is the indigenous history that forms this village right on the north bank of the Miami River on Biscayne Bay. And ever since um, they construct that village 2000 years ago. That has been the center of the community, um, whether it's called Miami or whether it's called something else. So that's probably the origins of the indigenous part of it, right? That's the part that gets uh, Miami onto the map where there's all sorts of rivers that empty out into the Atlantic ocean. But the Miami river is one of those that frequently gets charted um, very, very early in large part because of the native American presence that is there. And this is what attracts outsiders to the region. Uh, the, the initial Native American settlements and, and sitting in this advantageous geographic lo location. Um, and it seems to me uh, the indigenous Miami is uh, very much situated in between different cultures, um, be it Caribbean, be it Spanish, be it later Anglo, um, be it Seminole Native, Seminole Indians as well, and this ends up being a, a deeply intercultural space as well. Um, can you reflect on that for a minute? Yeah, well, I think, again, I think that's typical of most of North America and that region as a whole. So, right, so it starts off as Tequesta. One of the struggles in writing the book is what words we use to describe the people who are there. And so I use the word Tequesta, but the Tequesta are named for the leader um, of the community named Tequesta, who was there in 1513. So whether they were Tequesta or not beforehand, it's hard to know. But we know that they are connected with the indigenous world that goes for hundreds of miles in every direction, not just north towards St. Augustine. In fact, probably less north to St. Augustine than, say, south to Havana um, or east to the islands. And that is a 
good chunk of this world um, for a long time. And they are influenced by um, all the Spanish ships um, that leave Havana and hug the coast of Florida and make their way through the Florida Straits. And sometimes they shipwreck along the, the reefs that are there. Um, we have pretty good records of the Tequesta not only salvaging um, the various raw materials that are being shipped, but also concealing the reefs that are there in order to lure boats to areas that they think may be safe. Uh, we have them taking individuals ransom and they ransom um, cargo as well. And this is kind of a, a good chunk of that kind of lost history of what's happening along this coast. And it belongs, say, historiographically, it belongs to the Spanish Empire much more so than, say, um, much of the rest of, say, um, the area north of there. Um, they have remarkably little um, connection with St. Augustine, even after it forms. And so this indigenous story starts there. Um, and it, because of its isolation, say, from the rest of uh, British North America, when the English are here, it becomes this haven for all sorts of runaways, runaways from various militaries, runaways from slavery, um, that becomes a, I don't know, it's, it's still an indigenous community, but it's an indigenous community with lots of outsiders inside. And so it is, I mean, you know more about maroon communities than myself, but if we can stretch the meaning of what that is, this is certainly a community that lives outside of external jurisdiction for a very long time. And so they may be part of the Spanish Empire in theory or the English Empire in theory or later part of the United States, but it really is living un under rules and laws and governance that is quite different from what we normally expect. I think that's, that's definitely right. And to me, is one of, one of the things that makes foreign history so interesting as well is that it's um, after the middle of the 16th century, it is claimed by, by different European and North American nation states, uh, but in practice, on, on reality, as much as anywhere else in North America or the Caribbean, um, power is, is local and, and almost always in the hands of indigenous people or escaped African slaves or indigenous African communities or you name it. Um, that can be challenging in terms of the documentation and the records, um, but it makes for a remarkably interesting history and an interesting uh, counterpose to a, a lot of um, more standard Latin American history or, or Anglo-North American history as well, because in my imagination, Florida is always something borrowed from all these different trends and, and, and different um, historical entities. Um, it seems to me that the environment looms large in this book as well, um, perhaps because of the um, unusual uh, physical environment of, of South Florida and, and where Miami is, is situated. Um, and I, I don't know if you describe this as a work of environmental history, uh, but you certainly do a wonderful job of, of capturing the, the physical environment and capturing um, how indigenous people and others attempted to tame the environment, interact with the environment. Can you speak more about, about that? Sure. So I don't know if I consider it an environmental history, but I certainly think of the environment and the physical world as being an actor and something being acted upon throughout. So one of the things that I was writing against or one of the ideas that I was writing against was the general notion that is often portrayed that when um, white settlers or white pioneers arrived in the 19th century, that this was an overgrown um, jungle, that it was unkempt, that this was nature in its very first sense. And when you look at the history here as elsewhere, 
it's remarkable how much the landscape had been transformed um, by the Tequesta and the latter inhabitants, whether they be the, uh, the enslavers who were there or the slaves um, or the U.S. military. But this was a site um, where there was a, a tremendous amount of conscious changing of the environment. And so everything from the coastline being changed to wells being dug to lime trees being planted to kunti plants being cultivated um, at a very, very early stage, that this is a place where the infrastructure is really, really ancient rather than something remarkably modern. And so that was an idea that I was really pushing for throughout. Now, the flip of that is when you deal with archaeological records and archaeological studies, the physical environment is always an important part of it, right? So we can, for the ancient part of the story, the stuff that we are best able to tell are how they survive, uh, what tools do they use, um, and, and indeed how the environment gets reshaped by what the tools that they use and how they survive. And so the centrality of, say, shellfish and mound building and mid in creation um, and seafaring are those types of details that are most readily available from an incomplete archaeological record, right? So, uh, so it is both um, the source base that is most readily available, but also I think an important theme that um, thankfully we have the source base to, to address. So a little bit of both. Um, but Florida is unique, at least this part of Florida is remarkably unique in the sense of um, in, inhabitation existed in the interior because it was wet, but where it was dry, um, people really didn't live. And so they hugged the coast and they followed the rivers inland and they lived in the Everglades, which wasn't too far inland. Um, but water was really in a, a kind of essential reality for anyone who came there. Uh, water, mosquitoes, alligators, snakes, um, right? These are all opportunities for some and barriers for others. That's right. And, and on that hurricane, so that as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, and um, it, it, any given place has a particular physical environment, but it always strikes me that South Florida in particular has a, has a remarkable physical environment um, that is um, presents uh, extra issues, I suppose, for humans to, to tame. Um, and you see that you know, most, most obviously in modern day South, South Florida, um, expanding into places where you probably shouldn't be building and things like this. Um, but also, I think it's important as you, as you do to, to push back against this notion of the, the untamed wilderness, the overgrown wilderness. Europeans and Anglos just just arrived in the late 19th century and bulldoze over some things, and before you know it, you've got hotels and air conditioning and things like that. Um, and this is just sitting there waiting to be conquered when people have been taming this environment uh, for, for thousands of, of years, as you very skillfully show in the book. Um, let's talk quickly about the writing process. And one of the great things about this book is, um, for me, it's, it's so clearly written and it's so well written. Um, it's, it's right to the point. Um, it synthesizes a, a lot of different and sometimes difficult um, archaeology and historiography um, into a very manageable, concise read. Um, how did you how do you do that? Um, yeah. This is easy, and I I I think it's it's much harder to say a lot in in a, in a handful of words than it is to say a, a lot in a lot of words. And you certainly accomplished the, the former. Well, I kind of backed into the approach. So again, as a confluence of different things happening at once. So when I first started writing, the book was going to be about three times the length. 
And you know, it was the kitchen sink approach where there were lots of details. The chapters were long. Um, where there weren't many details, the chapters were short. And I probably had about two-thirds of that book written. And I was reading through it, trying to figure out how to really frame it. And I realized two things. That one, the indigenous part, especially the ancient indigenous part, um, was shorter by a significant amount than, say, the stuff on Flagler. And even the I stopped basically with Flagler. But I had material in the 1950s, and there was all sorts of wonderful materials in the 1950s because there was typed records. And I realized that I was following the sources more than following the story. Um, and so the, the manuscript was really out of balance. And at the same time, and this is hard for me to say, I found the indigenous ancient part less interesting than the modern part. Because to build up that story, I started doing a deep dive into all sorts of archaeology and listing one site after another site. And the distinctions between them were getting lost to me, the author, and I couldn't imagine what it would be like to read it. Um, and so in order to find balance between the two, I decided to pull back completely on all of it um, to figure out that the story really is of, of continuity, to find the, the through lines that allow us to explain how that ancient story affects the modern story. And I, I took the delete button, control X, right, left and right. And I have files full of paragraphs and footnotes and ideas that are um, perhaps interesting, but really tangential to the central story that I was trying to tell. And so as I started pulling, I realized that the, the story became smarter. Um, and I started, um, had an editor who said to me, get into public speaking mode or teaching mode rather than um, writing mode. And so I really, I did a lot of it by speaking out loud in the sense of if I had to give a public talk about this, what would I include and what would I not include? And often, I've seen a lot of people teach. We do that in a classroom a lot, but when we sit down to write, we often, well, I have to be really careful with the word that I use and it's an exception here, I got to explore that. And so I, I did my best to try to be honest with the range of interpretation that could be there and careful with the words that I used, but I really wanted to tell the story that was there. And so I kept pulling back and pulling back. And at the end, um, it's about as short of a book as I think I could write. Um, it's only about, I think, 50,000 words total. So it's really, um, it's concise, right, for, for an academic book. No, I think that everything you said was, was a very wise decision because I, I would describe it as, as concise but balanced. And I think that's a word you just used. And um, by evening out the chapters and paying just as much attention to indigenous history 1,500 years ago, say, for example, it really provides a strong sense of continuity. It um, provides a really strong sense of the indigenous impact on future generations. Uh, and I think it really helps the reader uh, chart and, and see and, and envision the development of, of Miami as, as, as a fundamentally an indigenous space, but then, then later a, a multicultural space. Um, and I think that if, I'm guessing that if you had written something considerably longer, it, that would have been great too. Um, but you, you probably, as you said, would have found that um, the earlier chapters would have been smaller uh, and it would have gotten over overwhelmed by the later era and you would have maybe accidentally inadvertently slipped into um, what people can interpret as supporting this narrative of the indigenous history is, is, um, 
less significant or a, a prelude to what is going to become later. Um, but what you do in this book is, is complete opposite. That for me, the indigenous history is, is front and center and, and where it should be. Uh, and absolutely as, as important for understanding the history of modern day Miami as any other development. And I think that is best achieved in a book of, of this length and in such a, a concise, um, tightly argued book. Um, and I can also see how it might be, um, be an excellent tool for teaching, which leads me to another question. Um, how do you envision, what do you, who do you envision reading this book? And who would you like to read this book? I mean, obviously everybody, um, but let's say everybody doesn't read it. Who, who would you most like to see reading it? And how would you like to see people using it? Well, I have a, there were a few different audiences, and, and the, the tone and the length were built for two audiences that I tend not to think about. So one audience is the group of tourists and Miami residents who will be going to the mouth of the Miami River to either eat dinner or visit the museum, right? So there'll be a restaurant overlooking this, this site. And I hope that there would be an accessible way for them really to understand what on earth it is that they're seeing. Um, and I'm doing my best to try to get the reading public of Miami and Florida more generally to take this idea seriously. So I've been doing a lot of public talks. I went to the Miami Book Fair, right, so in order to try to convince people who are there to reimagine a space in which they actually live. All right. So that's a different audience than, say, the academic audience who we tend to write for. Like I really so my, my wife is three generations deep in Miami. Um, and she has lots of family members there. And I wrote it to for them to be able to read as educated South Floridians who are not historians. And so I really had that as one of my audiences. And the other audience is historians of the American South or historians of Florida or historians of Native America who are looking for ways to think about how we connect the ancient world and the modern world. And right, this has been an ongoing conversation, right? Dan Richter talked about kind of the um, seismic shifts of the ancient past still affecting the present. And we have metaphors for it. But in most cases, we have a hard time really thinking about um, how the archaeological world of indigenous places connects with the written world that becomes ultimately dominated by white Anglo North Americans. And so uh, those seem to be two very different audiences. Um, but I, I think the sketch for the latter allows us to think a little bit differently. Um, so I'm hoping that academics will take that idea seriously. Um, right? Uh, it's not my campaign. I'm part of this larger campaign, as you know. But I think the indigenous South and the indigenous Florida or indigenous North America is often relegated to episodes in American history. Um, or relegated to Native American history. But I really think we can start thinking um, about almost any community that I have visited, at least, has this indigenous past that connects. I was in Chattanooga, and there's this, right, that's John Ross's landing from the early 19th century, and there's an ancient world there. Um, And when I spoke to a public audience in St. Augustine, I reminded them that the Spanish didn't build St. Augustine because there was a fort there. They built the fort there because the Timaqua were there, right? Um, that you have to have one stage of history before the next, right? Everything has a history as um, Grossman has been telling us, right? That's the, 
those are my audiences, right? There may be others, but those were the two that I explicitly wrote for. And, and I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the general audience, the reading public, will take this seriously. Um, but at the very least, I hope scholars who teach Florida history and Southern history do as well. I, my suspicions are that both audiences, which you are aiming for, will, will, will really enjoy the book and, and very much embrace it. And I can picture it, um, as you hope, uh, really informing general general knowledge um, amongst educated South Floridians in particular or visitors uh, to South Florida. Um, but I also hope um, very much that it will inform scholarship and keep moving people towards a deep, deeper understanding of, of North American history and North American history's ancient human, the ancient human trajectory of North American history, the richness of the archaeological record, um, the benefits of interdisciplinary approach, um, and in the case of, of Southern history, which you correctly situate a, a lot of your findings. I get it through their head that indigenous history was was important and central to Southern history as well. And the Southern history is infinitely more than um, I know the expansion of, of slavery and then the Civil War and then civil rights and, and, and things like that. Um, something which, is, as we've discussed before, and, and people will continue to need to say, um, is still prevalent in, in, uh, amongst a lot of, of academics. Um, but we're, we're certainly making progress, and it's, it's works like this. Uh, which appeal to multiple audiences, um, which hopefully will push push our understanding further and further forward. Um, on that note, I, I'd like to very much thank uh, Professor Frank for joining us today and, and talking about his, his excellent new book, uh, For the Pioneers, Indian Settlers, Slaves, and the Founding of, of Miami. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Frank. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. All right, I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>